Let's turn in our Bibles to page 991 again. 991. We're going to read the verses 27 to 44. Our goal here is to make it... I think it's to verse 54 by Good Friday, which is April 7. We're going to read the verses... 27 through 44, but our text is the verses 27 to 31. Before we read them, let's ask the Lord for a blessing on His Word. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to experience life. We come to experience the power of Your Son, Jesus Christ. You have promised, O Heavenly God and Father, and You have demonstrated throughout Your church's history that Your Word is power. For we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who believe the power of God. May that power now go forth and may it grip our hearts and equip us for service in Your church and kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning into verse 27, hear the Word of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. That's the end of our text, but we'll continue reading. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, if you were to take the elements of the Lord's Supper, which we're about to receive, the bread and the wine, just that little piece, just one little piece of bread, one little 
cup of wine and then go out into our society, go out into our world, stand on the street corner and ask people as they passed by, what is this? What do you see here? I'm not sure that many people would know. Some would, of course. Some would recognize, especially that little cup that so speaks to the Lord's Supper. But others wouldn't know. They would say, well, it's just a bit of bread, isn't it? And it's a bit of wine. They wouldn't see the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They wouldn't see the enormous gift of life. They wouldn't see the very power of life to sustain us as we live in service to God and to each other. They wouldn't find in that little bit of bread and little bit of wine an eternal blessing. They can't see that. They don't see that. Now maybe they would see something more if they saw the elements here in the worship service, if they were passing by and they peeked their heads in or watched if they were all of a sudden on YouTube and they happened to stumble upon our service now and they might watch for a minute and they'd see us taking the bread, breaking it, offering the cup, the wine. Then they would say, oh yes, okay, well I know what this is going, what's going on here. This is one of those rituals. This is one of those things you people do in order to keep your faith up, in order to encourage your commitment to the Lord and to your spirituality and that sort of thing. They wouldn't see the enormous comfort of the forgiveness of sins. They wouldn't stand in awe of the fact that the Son of God took on flesh that we might be redeemed that we might be united to Him and being united to Him might live in the power of His grace each and every day. They, they wouldn't see that in this ritual there is true life, strength, and power for those who participate by faith with the spirit of faith. They wouldn't see any of that. They would just see a spiritual ritual, an activity that believers do as they come together. They wouldn't see the truth. They wouldn't see, they couldn't penetrate beyond simply the superficial, the external. That's so often the case, isn't it, for our world, increasingly for our world, for the society that we, many of us grew up in that was Christian or at least had the hallmarks of Christianity in it. Increasingly, our world, our neighbors, they don't know anything about the Bible. People used to know things about the Bible. They used to know about Jonah and about Noah and the like. And now they know almost nothing of Jesus and of His ministry and of the cross of Calvary and Easter Sunday and the empty tomb. They don't see the truth of what we see. And that can be difficult for us at times as Christians. Maybe for young Christians, for new Christians. It can be difficult at times to, to struggle with that disparity that we, that we see something so rich, so wonderful, so encouraging. Our hearts are filled with such joy at the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ as we meditate on these things and reflect on as we receive them in the Lord's Supper. And then we go out to work and we go out to our friends and we go out to our society. We consume the culture through our TV shows and our phones, Instagram and all the rest. And they see none of this stuff. In fact, they mock it. They, 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 they make fun of our, our faith. And they, they say, it's empty. You're, you're, it's just ritual. There's nothing. There's no power to it. The only power there is is the power that you bring to it. It's not really anything at all. And that tension between a world that mocks and derides the faith And these moments where we are given the clearest evidence of the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ, it's hard for us to have to live in between those two poles, in between those two tensions. It can be challenging for us, for our young members, for our new Christians, 
maybe even for some of us who are more mature in the faith, we start to, we start to wonder, doubt, question, is it all true? And then we come to a passage like the one that is before us this morning, or this afternoon rather, as the soldiers in the governor's palace at the headquarters gather together as they put that robe on Jesus, the reed in His hand, the crown of thorns on His head as they mock Him, spitting on Him. Hail the King of the Jews, they say. And then strip Him down and bring Him away to be crucified. We have in those very words this experience of the tension that I speak of. This tension between a world that does not know the truth and the glorious truth of a king more wonderful and more amazing than our hearts will ever understand. I mean, put yourself for a moment in the shoes of one of these soldiers, in the sandals of Alexander, a soldier of the vaunted, mighty, world-dominating Roman legion of the Syrian cohort, sadly stationed in this backwater of a country where the people who live there don't know when they've been defeated, who don't know when progress has taken life past them, who don't know that they're living in the past in their narrow-minded, intolerant ways, who think they're the only ones that are right. They haven't realized that life has moved on. History has moved on. This is Rome, he, he thinks to himself. The might of Rome. The glory of Rome. Why can't these Jews figure out that the future is Rome? The future is progress. The future is a new, better world without any of all of this. This foolishness that the Jews so persist in in their sacrifices and their rituals and their spiritual activities. Why not worship, or why worship rather, their little empty God who had been defeated by the great and vaunted Roman legions? Why not embrace instead something bigger, something better, something global? Why fight against the immovable might of Rome? And now as Alexander sits in his barracks, word comes down that there is going to be an execution. There is going to be a a crucifixion of those enemies of Rome who dare to stand up against her. It's a lovely way to put these Jews back into their place. Because crucifixions are one of the most awful punishments inflicted on a human being invented by men. And even before that, before they nail the enemy, the criminal, the fool to a tree, he becomes sport for the battalion, for the cohort of 600 soldiers stationed in Jerusalem, especially during the Passover, because of all of the rioting, all of the trouble these Jews would get up into. And what is most appealing, this particular Jew who's being sent down to the Roman cohort is one of those troublemakers trying to overthrow the good order of Rome, is another one of these rebels who doesn't know his place, one who claims to be king of the Jews. Even it talks about, talks about establishing his kingdom. When will these Jews ever learn? Indeed, anyone who stumbled upon this scene as the Roman soldiers abused Jesus with their whips, with their brutal, destructive abuse. Anyone who had walked by the 
governor's headquarters and peeked in at that moment would have had no misunderstanding concerning what was going on in this moment. Jesus naked, save for a tattered soldier's robe with a thorny crown on his head, a cheap version of the, of the Caesar's uh, crown that he would wear. You remember Caesar wore a crown made of, of branches, of leaves. Well, here is a cheap version of Caesar's crown as he held a reed for a scepter. He looked the part. He looked like he was playing the part of a king, a pretended monarch. But clearly, a fool. As the soldiers mock and abuse this condemned prisoner as they abuse and beat his body, here is the truth. The truth that the Jews refused to accept. The truth that these foolish people would not come to understand. Here is the great might of Rome on display. Here is the truth of all great empires in all of history. You cannot defeat them. You cannot stand against them. They are powerful beyond your imagination. They are drunk on their power, cruel and abusive to anyone who defies them, mocking all of those who would stand in their way. It's, it's Nazi Germany in the days of the Second World War, even in places like the Netherlands, where to stand up and defy this cruelty was to ensure a swift and immediate punishment. It is the communist empire in the days of Russia, in the days of the Soviet Union, where to even speak out at all against the policies of your government was to send you off to the gulag. It was to send you off to prison. It's not so long ago even in our day. It's in Iran some months ago. Protesters, regardless of of their position and prestige, even on the world stage, were executed without a second thought. This is the way of our world. This is the way of progress. This is the way of our Western civilization and the empire of our nation. It may disturb us. It may offend us. We may say to ourselves, we'd never do that. But this is what man's empire does. It crushes any opposition. It establishes its power It stands with dripping teeth filled with blood over its enemies, putting their jackboots upon the necks of those who would oppose. Progress will not be defied. This progress will accomplish its purposes. And so the picture is complete. A foolish rebel, foolishly resisting, Backwards, unreasonable, unthinking, getting in the way of benefits, of blessings for others. This is where you end up when you swim against the current of history and of life. You are despised, mocked, abused, and rejected. History and the empires of history, even our leaders ask, when will these fanatics ever learn. And this is the struggle we face as Christians. 
In a world filled with endless wealth, endless power, endless beauty, endless achievements, Instagram pours the power of the world into our hearts and tells us you can't resist this. And why would you? Why? It's just the way it is. Don't stand opposed. All those old-fashioned concepts of fashion, of drug use, of tattoos, of career choices. That's so last millennium. Progress, passion, prioritizing the personal. That's today. What I think, what I feel, what I believe, that's reality. And why should the church stand in the way of that? I mean, how many churches, even those close to us geographically and theologically, aren't taking the approach, if you can't beat them, join them. How many worship services today are more reminiscent of a Justin Bieber concert than anything the church has done for the last 2,000 years? And how many of the messages preached from pulpits today are messages that the world agrees with and adopts and accepts? Who can resist this world? And who would want to? The world wins. Just admit it. And try to carve out a quiet space for your personal beliefs. Who can resist this endless pressure of a powerful culture such as ours? This is what the world sees. And this is what we sometimes see too. Sometimes we wonder. Before we come to any conclusions, let's take a second look at what we just read in Matthew's Gospel. Let's keep at least this in mind, that Jesus Himself had anticipated, even prophesied, about this very event in chapter 20 in the verses 17 through 21. Indeed, He had repeatedly prophesied about these things. He had told His disciples, before it would happen, this will happen. The Gentiles will beat Me. The Gentiles will strip Me naked. And I will be crucified. Indeed, though it may seem as though the world is winning, that the might of Rome has finally caught up with this dreamer, the fact is, from the perspective of our Lord, the might of Rome is only playing its assigned role in His ascension to the Father's throne. But how can this be? How can, how can this mocking, this cruelty, this... Abuse of life, so common, so typical of this fallen world. How can this be good in any way? How can this be useful for anything? How can this advance the kingdom of God? Let's admit at least that we struggle with that reality. We struggle with it in terms of the problem of evil, the great question of the problem of evil. How can bad things have any kind of good in the plan of God? How can the, the, the abuse of people, how can be the, the, the torture of children, how can be the, the sickness of, of, of so many, how can the hospitals and the beds that are so full of them with what is mindless and endless suffering and sorrow, how can any of it be good? Not the problem of minor inconveniences, but the problem of griefs that rip your heart apart, abuse that destroys spirits, loss that has no purpose or meaning. How can that at all be good in the, in the plan of God? 
And let's not even then focus on that, na- that broader question. Let's focus on the more narrow Let's focus on Jesus as His flesh is torn from His back while He is scourged by the whips of the Romans. Let us see His body breaking, His cries of agony before the enemy. How can this be good? How can anything so wicked be good? Isn't this one of the ways in which the world tempts us to relinquish our grip on Christ? Isn't this the very thing that the world does? It holds up these terrible pictures of grief and misery and wickedness and says, how can you believe in a God who allows this? How can you love a God who does this to your loved ones? Yet let's trace back all of this grief for a moment. Let's follow it back for a moment to how it is that we got here. Not... Not just to Jesus in the governor's headquarters being abused by soldiers who gleefully and cruelly abuse Him in so disgusting a way, but, but go beyond that. Go to the hatred of Sanhedrin. Go beyond the Sanhedrin. Go to the, to the wickedness of Israel that brought it into exile, that brought this mighty Roman Empire to dominate the land. Go before that to Babylon, to the Assyrians. Go before that to their being in Egypt, go before that to the days of Adam and Eve in the beginning in the garden when God made everything good and there was no cruelty, there was no cancer, and there was no abuse, and there was no disease, and there was no divorce, and there was no anger or selfishness or pride. Everything was good. The world shone with the beauty of God's greatness. And a serpent whispered in our ears, God is not good. God is not good. Don't trust Him. Don't serve Him. Rebel. Be free. Reject. Refuse. God is not good. And we said, okay. We embraced cruelty over compassion. We thought sexual immorality was better than purity and devotion. We thought greed was good. We thought pride could keep us from falling. We thought selfishness would make life better. We're the cause of this wickedness. It's our sinfulness. It's our selfishness. It's our stupidity that is here on display as these Roman soldiers reject the Creator that sustains their very existence, the One who called them into being, who formed them in their mother's womb, who continued to care for them as they grew, who gave them the strength in their arms to whip Him now as He stands before them. They who are rejecting the only hope that this world will ever have. We're those people. We're the ones who've done this thing. We are looking in the mirror of God's Word and maybe because of the horrific truth of what we see, we want to turn away. And maybe because of how brutal we make life by our careless and cruel actions, we want to blame God and not admit that it is us. But take a look a little longer and you'll see the truth. And you'll see beyond the reality of your own darkness 
to find a God so great and glorious. The true miracle of this moment is breathtaking. Because hear the words of Abram to his son Isaac when he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, are fulfilled. Follow the story of Joseph as he's portrayed by his brothers, cruelly mistreated by Potiphar's wife, forgotten by those whom he's blessed. Walk with David all those years as Saul sought to kill him. Journey with him in the wilderness as Absalom, his son, tries to kill him. Hear Isaiah's prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The path that we chose it's a path that leads ever downward into the darkness of God's wrath against our sin. And now look for a moment on that path. Look ahead and see again this scene that we just read in Matthew's Gospel. Pass by again the governor's headquarters. Peer in for a moment and see this Jesus naked with this crown of thorns, this reed in His hands, this scarlet robe upon His shoulders, beaten and abused by His enemies. And see if the scene hasn't changed. Oh, it's still disturbing, cruel, abusive, wicked, and a clear revelation of the darkness that dwells in all of our hearts. Look into this grotto of darkness, into this grotto of wickedness, and see the light shine out of it. Because it shines from the one bearing the scorn and abuse. He is experiencing each whip, each crack upon his back. Because this is the only way for you to be saved. He allows His meager, minor clouds of dust, these creatures that spit upon Him to so abuse Him. Because your choice leads to that end. But you can't bear it. So He does. This is part of that suffering Jesus had to endure in order to lift us from the pit of sin in order to break the chains of rebellion that encircle us. This is part of His saving work for you. Each piece of flesh torn from His back as He was scourged. Each drip of spit that fell from His face having been cast there by His enemies. Each indignity, each mistreatment, each abuse was to lift you from the depths of this black world and free you for the light of His kingdom. This is Jesus loving you with so perfect a love. A love so amazing. So divine. It demands your soul. Your life. Your all. That's the story that confronts us today. And confronts us every day. The world with its forceful bravado, its depressing progression into cruelty, its wicked ways that wash away all that good in its wake. Who can stand against such a force? 
Give in, we're told. Ride the wave. Only shooting stars break the mold the world sings. So let your heart guide you. Be true to yourself. Don't let anybody put you down. You are the most important person in the world. That's what the world wants us to believe. That's the spirit of this age. That's what we're so tempted to believe and buy into. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. The bread and the wine. Look at them again. See them again. Here's the truth. We are cruel. We are wicked. But He is wonderful. He loves you that much that He would bear this grief that you never need to. So come to the table. Come with gratitude. Come with amazement. Come with wonder in your heart. Take that bread, that flesh torn that day. Take that blood dripping from His body and say, I see the truth. I see the truth. This is not a mere ritual. This is not some empty spiritual event. I come here to embrace this Messiah that His power might fill me and free me by His grace. Let's ask for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is so easy to see the wrong thing. We live in a world that tells us it's not true. It's not true. Don't believe it. It's not true. It's just a bit of bread and a bit of wine. It's nothing really. Help us to see that it's life. Help us to see that it's power. Help us to see that it's our freedom. Help us to see that it's His love. And help us to worship at His feet. Love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.